Hello and welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. My name is Alejandro Rojas and I am here with Martin Spectacular Willis. Oh, that's a spectacular thing to say. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought you were having some type of attitude, but then I realized it was it was almost like glee. Yeah, it's more glee-ish than attitude-ish. Yeah. It's more of fun silliness, which is kind of kind of my thing. <laughs> No one really uses the word glee anymore. So yeah, I know. After the TV show went away, everybody kind of shied away from that. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Mm. But let's get into it. So this is Open Mind UFO Radio, where we cover credible UFO news and information. We take a journalistic view to bring you substantiated information, not just speculation. We do speculate here and there, but uh, you know, unfortunately most of this field is mostly speculation. So I like to bring to you the hard-hitting news, what's going on. So the first part of the show is the news. We'll cover the news stories of the week. However, especially with the great guests that we have uh, and the interest in, in the guests that we have today, you may want to skip the first 25 minutes and go straight to the interview. That is just fine, especially if you know you're listening to this 10 years from now. And uh, you want to just get to the interview. That <laughs> mm. is just fine. So you can do that. Cause, uh, and I do say that because some people are like, man, they just talk about the news at the beginning. I want to hear it from the guest. Well, that's fine. Skip ahead. But I do want to take a minute. And uh, my guest is so important this week. And some of you may not know who he is. But I'm going to read his bio. So please, uh, sorry, Martin. This is going to take just a minute. Uh, but mm. you'll understand because he's so important. His name is Dr. Eric Davis. Why is he so important? Well, there's probably two scientists in particular, um, I would say, who are really important right now. And that is Dr. Davis and his boss at uh, Earth Tech, Dr. Hal Putoff. That's because they both work for this Pentagon program. So we got these dirds, these reports, essentially, that uh, that the Pentagon asked these these scientists to write about these, you know, projects with uh, that were actually, even though they're technology based, they're, these guys have written these things kind of based on the paranormal, and we'll get into that in this interview. But uh, let me read this this uh, bio. Eric Davis is the chief science officer of Earth Tech International and the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin. Dr. Davis' research uh, specializations include breakthrough propulsion physics for interstellar flight, interstellar flight science, beamed energy propulsion, advanced space nuclear power and propulsion, directed energy weapons, future and transformational technology, general relativity Activity theory, quantum field theory, quantum gravity theories, experimental quantum optics, and SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, xeno 
archaeology. We actually had someone on to talk about xenoarchaeology before. But Dr. Davis's research activities include megawatt-class laser propulsion physics systems, designing and performance metrics, and uh, mission applications for the U.S. Air Force laser light craft program, quantum optics tomography experiments to measure negative vacuum energy, studies on the multi-layered quantum vacuum structure and its applications, general relativistic time machines and causality, superluminal photons in curved space-time, gravistars and black holes, and quantum entanglement, teleportation, and non-locality, studies in traversable wormhole and warp drive space-times for faster-than-light propulsion, and feasibility studies on laser inertial confinement, inertial electrostatic confinement, Z-pinch and dense plasma focus fusion concepts for space propulsion, much like the stuff that you study. Uh, right, Martin? Yeah, you know, you lost me way ahead of, <laughs> uh, what was it, in- intervincible wormhole? <laughs> Not, like I think you're way yeah. off there, but I would be yeah. too. I think you lost me back at vacuum or something. He currently yeah. serves as an adjunct professor in the Early Universe Cosmology and Strings Group at the Center for Astrophysics, Space Physics, and Engineering Research at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He earned his PhD in astrophysics from the University of Arizona in 91, the year I graduated from high school. Uh, Dr. Davis is a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, associate fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, Directed Energy Professional Society, uh, the American Astronomy, Astronomical Society and the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. Wow. So a lot of stuff. And the reason I bring all this stuff is because you can hear this is mainstream science. These are, uh, you know, credible organizations he's associated with. But what we're going to be talking about is wild and crazy stuff. So to hear, you know, this this wild stuff we're talking to him about with UFOs and paranormal and and, you know, voices coming out of nowhere related to the Skinwalker Ranch, paranormal stuff. You know, that's why I wanted to bring up the background. So in an interview I did, in fact, Martin, uh, with uh, John Alexander, Alexander had talked about how Eric Davis was a somehow a magnet for all the paranormal stuff going on at Skinwalker really? Ranch. And so we talk about that in this interview. Wow. Yeah, I, I can see with a background like that. <laughs> Holy mackerel, that is something else. Um, and I saw that he had an interest in UFOs way back. There's an old article I just read um, why he was talking about why the science community won't take you know UFOs seriously back in 2013. But he's so he does uh, uh, light travel uh, science and research. Right, and I mean space-time, time warping, time travel, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, so when Amazing. they're talking about with To the Stars, you know, who who works with Earth Tech and Dr. Davis in developing these technologies, and we do discuss this, you know, that they're, they're essentially getting some clues about how the technology works from just observations of UFOs. You know, this is something they're really doing, that they really think they can do, and they've got these people... Uh, the right people to do it right amazing yep and you know uh we'll talk to dr eric davis about this idea because there's this idea and i'm sure you've heard it out there and i'd love to hear your point of view that 
all of this, uh, you know, to the stars and this Pentagon project, all of this coming out is part of a disclosure effort where the government or some kind of secret keepers are trying to slowly release information. But uh, Elizondo and the others we've talked to say that's not the case at all. And, you know, if you follow the history of how this has all happened, you know, Tom DeLong does not work for the government. He did this all on his own. Um, mm-hmm. He was able to then entice, you know, Elizondo to join his program. But Elizondo retired. He wasn't planning on getting this information out. Um, so he decided this on his own. Otherwise, guys like Eric Davis and Hal Putoff, who have worked on all of this stuff uh, with Bigelow and, and, and the Pentagon, they've been doing this for literally decades. Um, you heard, you know, over decades they've been working on UFOs and paranormal and trying to get the mainstream to pay attention. So this isn't something new. This isn't something where some secret hand came to them and said, oh, we're going to get you to do this, this, and this. No, this is something they've been fighting for, for decades. And finally, they're getting more respect and, um, you know, more attention than ever. And we'll get into that when we get into the news. But uh, we'll talk to Dr. Davis about his thoughts regarding all that as well. Wow. Sounds like a fantastic guest. I don't know why he's been off my radar for my show. I mean, I definitely would love to have someone like that. Yeah. I don't know what your deal is, dude. I don't know either. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Well, let's get into the news. How about it? Well, yeah. Oh, we had a... A fantastic week for news, all starting from a political uh, Politico uh, report. Uh, actually, right after my show, you text me a link uh, back on Tuesday. It came Isn't out that last crazy? Tuesday. I know. Both of our shows are on Tuesday, and this news came out. You know, I had uploaded my show, and I'm sure your show was already done. So our shows were wrapped up, and then boom, and then this news comes out. This came out, uh, let's see, that came out at... Uh, right uh, six minutes after my show started. <laughs> I'm looking at the timestamp. So stamp. funny. Yeah, that so, sounds yeah. right, because I got done doing the news with you, and then I found the story, and, uh, and then, I'm, of course, that was all the rest of my day. Yeah, and uh, from this one story, I'll talk about it in a second, uh, all kinds of things have spawned off, um, you know, articles. Every, I guess you would call this uh, going viral in a way. And yeah. Of course, just the uh, just the title alone you can see why U.S. Navy drafting new guidelines for reporting UFOs. That's the uh, uh, Politico uh, headline. And, uh, you know, some people right away were arguing, well, uh, they're talking about things, unidentified aircraft, uh, you know, not UFOs has nothing to do with it. I, I saw that argument right away. But it doesn't, it doesn't really say anything that makes that explainable one way or the other as far as I'm concerned. And... Um, and many people are, you know, that's been the basis of a lot of, uh, you know, conversations and other, uh, you know, uh, for instance, the Washington Post has written a great story story about uh, why, um, how angry pilots got the Navy to stop dismissing UFO sightings. I love that one. And uh, so, you know, f- just pick one story, but let's talk about political first. Um, I'm wondering, do you, since you have done a lot of research on this since it came out, um, why why is it them that you know broke the story, and how did how did how was it them? Do you know about that? You know what? I don't know for sure. However, the author Brian Bender has been interested in this topic. 
for a while. So when the December 2017 story came out that broke the Pentagon UFO program ATIP story, Brian Bender had a story out within the hour. So he mm. must have been working on this. He kind of uh, caught on to this as well. However, you know, I wrote a, a blog called uh, Why the Navy yeah. Taking UFO Seriously Matters. And in that blog, I also linked to another story that Brian Bender had out where soon after the December news had come out, he held, uh, because he's the, uh, you know, like space uh, editor for Politico, which was kind of a new thing they were doing, they had a bit of a conference with some of the space uh, people involved with space. So they had people from the the committees uh, for armed services or the committees for science and space. Uh, they also had some of the national space council people available at this event. And he asked a couple of these people, a couple of actual house reps that were on the space committee. They said, well, and, and one of the people on the national space council. And he asked them, what do you think of this news lately with the UFOs? And actually one of them in the space committee said, you know what, I found this really interesting, and I even went to the head of our committee and said, hey, shouldn't we have hearings on this? So they were all taking it all uh, very seriously, which was, I think, really eye-opening and important, uh, what he did there. So he's obviously had like a, uh, a his hand on the pulse of what's going on here. So somehow hmm. he got this information first, and he, you know, very, it's a great story because he talks about ATIP. He talked to Chris Mellon, who's part of... Uh, to the stars, um, mm -hmm. you know, you've had him on the show, really important person uh, related to all of this. And he brought in, he brought the correlations because, and, and in fact, let me read the full statement. I got a copy of the full statement from someone who um, sent it to me and he has it in, uh, he's done PR for different government organizations and was able to get it. But this is from the deputy chief chief of naval operations uh the political story had pieces of this statement in there but not the whole thing but here is their full statement there have been a number of reports of unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft entering various military controlled ranges and designated airspace in recent years for safety and security concerns the navy and the u.s air force take these reports very seriously and investigate each and every report as part of this effort, the Navy is updating and formalizing the process by which reports of any such suspected incursions can be made to the cognizant authorities. A new message to the fleet that will detail the steps for reporting is in draft. In response to requests for information from congressional members and staff, Navy officials have provided a series of briefings by senior Naval intelligence officials as well as aviators who reported hazard to aviation safety. Um, mm. So, of course, they say they take these things seriously. We know from the past that they've, they've blown us off, so they've lied to us, to be quite frank. I mean, unfortunately, we can't put it any other way, especially when it comes to the Air Force. Uh, I know this, and that's the gist of my story, is that, you know, I've been... Uh, writing about this and, and investigating and doing everything for, for decades now. And every time you go to the Air Force, they say, sorry, we don't have any interest. And they send you to that patent statement that says, oh, we closed our UFO interest back in 1969 at yep. the end of Project Blue Book because of the Condon report. So now that they're, you know, in this Navy statement, they say, oh, we take this seriously and we've been investigating these. And uh, we know ATIP has. 
but we don't know who else has. So this is news to us because that's, you know, counter to what you've been telling us in the past. So, um, so it is interesting, but I, I think it's obvious that, you know, the gist of my story was we know where this comes from. I mean, Elizondo comes out in October with uh, To the Stars announcement. Mm-hmm. Some of the people in the media and Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal deserve a lot of credit. They saw this as important. They were able to talk to New York Times and to do in the story that came out in December. The story became huge. A lot of the witnesses related to the Nimitz case that was in the New York Times article then started coming out and talking on all the major news stations. Then, you know, and, and I have links to all these stories in, in my post here. Then we have politicians saying uh, they want these guys to come talk to them in different committees, including like the Senate um, Armed Services Committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they do. And so we have all of this going on in the background. And uh, finally, those guys must have been able to really pique the interest of, of the politicians and the others that they talk to because uh, this is happening. So Tom DeLong posted and he, he said, this is a direct result of To The Stars Academy and, and our efforts. And uh, some people have said, I don't see any evidence of that. But I think there's plenty. I mean, I've been talking. We've talked about this. People are like, why isn't To The Stars telling us what they're doing? Because we're not their audience, you know. These are not, uh, this isn't all totally a public-facing things. Like Lou has said, they're trying to grease the wheels behind the scenes and get the people who should be paying attention and should be releasing information and doing investigations, doing the work. And that's where they've spent a lot of their time, which... We wouldn't see, but here we're seeing the results of it. Wow, so interesting. I'm wondering now if other, you know, armed services will follow suit. Yeah. You know, like, of course, the Navy uh, has, you know, a lot of uh, air power, but, you know, the Air Force, number one, you know, you, you'd wonder if they, they would follow suit on this. Yeah, those are great points. Those are really great points. Uh, and we don't know. It's it's very interesting. I think that the Navy should bring up the U.S. Air Force, um, maybe because people might be thinking, well, why is the Navy saying this? Shouldn't it be the Air Force that's talking about this? So maybe for that reason. I wouldn't imagine, though, that the Navy would bring up the Air Force in this statement without first conversing at some level with the Air Force about what they're doing. So I, I, it would make sense, I think, that we would hear something from the Air Force soon. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we haven't seen what these these guidelines are going to be. Some people say, oh, they're just going to lock everything down even worse. And that's possible. These guidelines may say you report your, your sighting up to command and then you're not to speak about you know your sighting at all uh, until we've got analysis. And that could be it. However... I think what we have to realize is, like they said, they take these these sightings seriously. And Nick Pope has talked about this, for instance, when the MOD closed theirs. And we've talked about this, even when with the Air Force. Even though the Air Force is telling us we don't care about UFOs, we know from documents they do care about UFOs, and they have been investigating them. So this is the truth. It's just, this is all the public-facing end of things. So right. um, yeah. this is a public statement. So what they're saying here essentially is we're now going to look into this. We're going to take these reports, which makes it incumbent upon them to have some sort of public relations regarding all this. And that's what really this is kind of saying is now we're going to start interacting with the public a little more about this topic. 
Well, you know, it's always kind of silly if you really think about it. Um, the denial, because, you know, who wouldn't, you know, who would be the number one, you know, branch of the government that would, that would want to make sure the air is safe? And that would be the Air Force. You know, I'm talking yeah. about the U.S., of course. But um, for them to deny it and, and like it doesn't mean anything, you know, Chicago, the uh, O'Hare incident, C-17, you know, that one. Um, in right. particular, like, oh my God, that's the one of the busiest airports in the in the world, and uh, or at least in the one of the busiest in the country. And and for there to be a UFO, and then not to have, you know, for them not to worry about it at all, you know, is absolutely silly and and uh, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So yeah. So it's um, of course they're they're not i mean it just did it never made any sense that they have no interest yeah because of the safety factors alone yeah basically exactly and that gets into one of these stories so uh on the front page of openminds.tv you'll see the original political article you'll see my my blog kind of shaping this for you all hopefully and, and giving you some more insight uh and links into some of the background we've got the one you mentioned the washington post the angry pilots um, and I think that's a big part of it. You know, these, these pilots like Commander David Fravor, I don't think the Navy wants to disparage these people or do like what Nick Pope calls spin and dirty tricks and kind of, you know, discount these people. Uh, Fravor's a, an important guy. And I, I, you know, I think they would rather say, okay, we're going to listen to your report as opposed to their previous policy, which was to kind of make fun of the reports. But, uh, mm -hmm. we've got the Navy, wrote something up. They didn't really add anything new to it, but yes. it's interesting. The Navy okay. Times wrote about it. But this is the last one I have here, which is uh, from the War Zone, our buddy right. Tyler Rogoway. And yeah. that's a good one. It's called, What the Hell is Going On with the UFOs and the Department of Defense? And he brings mm. up kind of what you're talking about. Of course, they would be idiots not to be looking into this. And he's kind of saying it's kind of silly that they said they weren't paying attention to, you know, aircraft that can do things, uh, you know, uh, we can see doing incredible maneuvers and not to pay attention to them. But the other thing that some some people have been a little concerned about is he said this very could possibly be, you know, uh, a secret spy plane or drone of some sort. And some people are like, that's impossible. If they looked at the SCU report, you know, the characteristics show that uh, it's beyond what we can do. But... I think this is a good sign because he also said we cannot deny that these craft exist, that these craft, they were witnessed mm -hmm. by our, the best of our best of all of our tech, by our F-18 pilots. This has to exist. This thing had to have done what these pilots said it did. So what the heck is it? He's saying we have to face the fact that there are these things out there. Um, he's saying now it could be a black project. Um, but I like it's at least moving the conversation forward to let's not ignore it because of the term UFO. Let's take a serious look and try to figure out what this is. And I think as he sees more information like that SCU report, uh, more background into people like Eric Davis, he's going to see that there's a, a lot more to this than even he realizes. So it's going to be fun. Rogaway is a great journalist, too. I don't think he's going to shy away from the tough stuff. Right, right. And one of the things, you know, I, I recently had a, a mini debate with someone about the Tic Tac and and they said, you know, um, they were sure that their their statement was is they were sure that it was a, a secret government project. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really, you know, make sense that we can have a craft that would hold together with the G forces that this thing was taking. Right. You know, uh, we just don't have that yet. I mean, I, I can't see how we could have that. Right. Exactly. So a couple other stories. 
Uh, we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. Wow. I know it flies, but yeah. it's such exciting news. Um, a poll on the Sonoma Index. So last week we talked about a UFO sighting. They talked about that must have been a popular article because now they did a poll. Uh, how many people have sightings? And they had about 20% had sightings. They also had about 35% of people say there's no, no such thing as UFOs and it's a bunch of hooey. But mm. uh, a couple other things. A uh, In South Carolina, a welcome center for UFOs. Uh, <laughs> some guy in Wales took a UFO photograph. I typically, you'll notice, have not been including uh, UK tabloids because they've got some really terrible stories lately, real goofball stuff. But I did include this one, Joe Wood, because she's pretty famous. And I guess yeah. she's starting a TV show or a, a podcast where she's going to be interviewing other stars, including Dan Aykroyd, about UFOs. And she searched some interesting sightings there. And then finally, yeah, I do want to talk Rolling about this. Stones. I'm uh, sorry. That's Ronnie Wood's wife. Um, yeah. Former uh, wife. Okay. I want to yeah. talk about this one. Uh, an interview with this guy, Sean Cahill, who's going to be on the Unidentified show on the History Channel. And this is from the Silva oh, Record. Yeah. So we had Danny Silva on. So this will be from the Silva Record. So uh, some cool stories there. And one last thing. Sorry, Martin. I That's do right. want to talk about uh, Karen did extend the code for the International UFO Congress. So as you're listening to uh, the show, you might want to go to ufocongress.com. Get your tickets, and for any of the packages, use that code SAVE50, and you'll save $50. Save 50 Wow. I'm going to try that code everywhere. Hey, so that's September 4th through the 8th coming up? Yes, September 4th through the 8th. Thank you for bringing that up. And uh, we've got a lot of the speakers listed, a lot of great stuff, and we have some expi- exciting speakers yet to be listed. So uh, check that out. But thank you so much for joining us with the news, Martin. Oh, it's fun as always. You're welcome. It's 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 a blast. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get into our interview with Dr. Eric Davis. We'll be right back after this break. I am very happy to welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Eric Davis. Hello. How are you? Fine. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing very well. And I guess my first question, because we have a lot to get into, is what do you think of this news uh, coming just recently that the Navy is working up some guidelines on uh, UFO reporting? Well, it's about time. And uh, the Navy's has always led all of the service branches in, in many areas, and this is just another example where they're ahead of the curve, whereas the Army and the Air Force just shy away. Uh, for example, the Navy is the leader in directed energy weapons development in the uh, Department of Defense, so uh, they have uh, had the uh, most accelerated schedule for developing directed energy uh, and deploying it on uh, combat test vehicles. Well, first doing experimental prototyping, and testing, and then deploying it on a combat vehicle out in the Persian Gulf. So they're way ahead of where the Army, the Marine Corps, and and the Air Force have been. And <clears throat> those services haven't even yet fielded any any prototypical combat uh, weapons that uh, can be fielded. That have been fielded. They haven't done that. They're just doing uh, development and testing, and they'll be doing prototyping inside the United States. And they're just lagging behind. And then when the UFO subject comes along, you're, well, what do you know? It's the Navy that's having all the problems with the encounters of Tic Tac-like UFOs or other UFOs 
and um, and so they're the ones that are going to take the lead to mandate a specific recording uh, uh, reporting protocol for everybody that has such encounters. Mm-hmm. And did you think, as far as the leadership is concerned, are they concerned about a, a possible unknown, or do you think that they mostly feel that these could be foreign adversaries just using technology we don't recognize? Well, the first hypothesis is it's a foreign adversary that we don't recognize. But then, once you do the analysis of the uh, <clears throat> the F eighteen fighter FLIR videos and radar from the surface warships that, like, for example, I'm speaking of the uh, USS Nimitz uh, carrier strike groups encountered with the Tic Tac back in November 2004, in the first week, I believe, for a whole, for about a week of, of encounters. And <clears throat> when you look at visual sightings, uh, timings, uh, scoped sightings that were done from on board the ships using sophisticated observational scopes that they use out in the ocean. And then, of course, the weapon systems radar and uh, aviation radar, and then the fighters have their own systems and so forth. Uh, when, you look at, when you look at when first contact is made and then how rapidly the object moves and changes altitude and uh, hovers over the ocean and zips off again, uh, and it's changing altitudes by dozens of thousands, tens of thousands of feet, or dozens of times tens of thousands of feet. Um, in a matter of three to five seconds, you're you're not basically talking about human technology. There's no Russian or Chinese or North Korean or Iranian or anybody else, no no NATO or any other alliance or non-alliance country, non-allied countries have any sort of technology that can perform the way these Tic Tacs. Uh, were found to be performing. <clears throat> and it's really easy to discern the difference between <clears throat> even an unknown man-made object and and, uh, and uh, this phenomenon, because unknown man-made objects have to obey the laws of, uh, of aerodynamics <clears throat> and the engineering that's associated with that. And, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Tic Tacs don't have any observable control surfaces. They don't have any appendages. They don't have any external engines and, and um, engine mounts and pylons. Uh, uh, what am I thinking of? I can't think of the word that right now, but <clears throat> it's how the engines are connected up. And uh, um, so control surfaces are lacking. Uh, external propulsion is lacking. Uh, you don't see windows. And so, you know, what, what is this? This isn't anything a drone, even a drone wouldn't look like this. <clears throat> all drones have <clears throat> all drones have an engine, a propulsion system, which is very <clears throat> easy and obvious to observe. <clears throat> and their uh, and their structural fuselages are, are also very easy to discern and and determine. <clears throat> and they adhere to the human designs for aeronautical platforms that move through air. <clears throat> the things we're seeing. Uh, are not shaped <laughs> in the usual, typical way that we humans would shape them. So you you got you got to come up with another hypothesis, and the only hypothesis is something unknown, mm-hmm. and and it's got a good chance that it's not human technology. So, 
thank you for that. But uh, we'll get into your background now and kind of, you know, related to this. Now, you've been doing this and, and a lot of your colleagues uh, that you work with in particular, Hal Putoff, of course, you've been working in this arena for decades. But there are these ideas out there right now that this is part of some controlled disclosure, that, you know, this has all been planned. And if that was so, that would mean that you were part of some bigger plan. I mean... Is, is that something that you feel is credible at all? Do you see that? Or is this just kind of the fruits of your efforts, all of your efforts to bring kind of the credibility to um, these more what would be considered fringe areas of science? Well, it's two things. It's, it's the cumulative effect of all of our efforts, decades of efforts of hard work. But uh, the release of this information is driven strictly by the phenomenon itself. Uh, all this nonsense about a, a planned di disclosure or confirmation, that's all conspiracy theory nonsense. And it's <clears throat> one of the first order hypotheses that jumps into many people's not minds when they're uninformed about what's going on. The gov United States government is such a big and complex organization, uh, multiple organizations, I should say, interconnecting, interlocking, and, and you know, uh, by, by deliberative reasons, Parts of it are secret, and other parts are not secret. And so <clears throat> parts that are secret don't talk to the non-secret parts, and even the parts that are secret don't talk among themselves or within themselves because of compartmentalization or, certain, or the differences in classification, many different secrets out. So, uh, so <laughs> there is no coordinated anything, because I have to guarantee you that the United States government is not that coordinated, especially in the Donald Trump era. <laughs> right. So, anyway, anyway, the, mm -hmm. the, this is there's no such thing as a coordinated or uncoordinated or planned or unplanned disclosure. <clears throat> That's all been a salesman pitch that was invented by a lot of the more vocal, high-profile celebrities in ufology. And that's how they sell their books. That's how they sell... Uh, tickets to uh, their special events, and that's how UFO conferences uh, sell tickets to their conferences when these type of people are invited as guest speakers. Uh, this lies in the in the realm of rational, scientific, and bureaucratic thinking. <laughs> the UFO phenomenon has been encountering naval weapons platforms repeatedly, and has created a dangerous environment for the pilots, for the human pilots that are involved. And so now it's becoming a great safety issue because the numbers or the frequency, well, I should say the numbers and the frequency of the encounters is pretty big. And it is not minute. It's not rare. It's not once in a while. It's more like, yeah, it's, it's pretty often. And it isn't located in one's geography. It's spread across the globe. And it's interacting with the U.S. Navy. So that's been driving their desire to want to do this new reporting protocol and put it out there, which Politico just reported yesterday. So, uh, and then as far as uh, what Lou Elizondo did after he retired from the DOD is he was pretty upset that uh, this program, the AAWSAP program, and it's not really called the ATIP, AATIP, that's, uh, that's the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program that Harry Reid pulled out from thin air and made it up on his own in a letter that he wrote to Deputy Secretary of Defense William Blinn many years ago. And the actual program is AAWSAP, and I forget, Advanced Aerospace Weapons 
something system or another. I don't remember. Application what program. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably it. so. Uh, and it turned out. Anyway, I think this is a kind of goes back to your communication issue because it turned out. I think what it it, it seems what had happened is. R- Harry Reid was aware that Lou and his uh, the guy running AAWSAP had been working on ATIP and using the term, but that information probably didn't get to you all because you were hired by and working with AAWSAP. Uh, no, it's just that Harry Reid wasn't fully briefed on everything. Well, that's I mean, how Lou. That's how Lou had said that. That actually Harry okay, Reid. Okay. Well. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not going to contradict Lou then. That's fine. I, my view is, yeah, we, we were working as subcontractors to Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, who had the contract to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And so, uh, yeah, our worldview was AAWSAP. And then all of a sudden we see AATIP pop up. Okay, so <laughs> I'm not going to contradict Lou. He knows more about it at that level. I didn't sit in his office and hear all this right. uh, jargon go flashing by. I'm, down, I'm one of the worker bees who are ex- expediting the mission. And um, <clears throat> anyway, so no, there's no, there's no, there's no conspiracy the theory. There's no, uh, uh, there's no long, you know, it's like the long-awaited bread of, uh, Return of Jesus. Well, everybody's had the long-awaited disclosure, and it's like, no, this isn't it. Uh, well, and we're, I, we're, I, we're, we're, however, however, uh-huh. officially, uh, the United States government, uh, uh, via the DOD, of course, I, I'll, I'll reverse it. The DOD has issued an official confirmation. So that's what they've done. They they've officially confirmed it. Now mm. they have done disclosure. What they've disclosed is a. They have had encounters with unusual craft that they cannot identify as human-made or unknown human-made craft. In in, in other words, they don't, the objects don't follow the aerodynamic rules of engineering, okay? They just Mm -hmm. don't, okay? And that's driven by physics. And I'm not saying that they're breaking laws of physics, so don't quote me on on, on anything having to do with, well, they're... They're operating on a new physics we haven't invented. Or, or, no, they're breaking the laws of physics. It is possible they're operating on a physics we haven't invented or haven't discovered yet. That's possible. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, uh, the point is is that uh, that these things are operating. They go way outside the envelope of our engineering and physics technologies. And, and uh uh, I can guarantee you that no laws of physics are broken whatsoever. It's just that it's either uh, the existing laws that we have, but we haven't uh, extrapolated it further enough, further enough, or expanded it enough into realms or uh, say areas of phase space where we could discover new solutions to uh, these existing physical laws, which would give us advanced propulsion and power that would produce this type of technology once you have an engineering and a manufacturing technology to create these things. So that's where we're at. And these things don't look like anything that we can manufacture on Earth, so we don't have the manufacturing or industrial technology for it. We don't have an engineering for it. In other words, the blueprints and designs to get something shaped like shaped like a an air, uh, a fighter-sized piece of candy, mouth bent, <laughs> uh. and uh, get that to fly through the air stably, and uh, <clears throat> and do the wonderful things that they do in the air, as reported by the F-18 pilots at the uh, associated with the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group. 
Right. So, and then, uh, of course, and then we have the history of UFO, of UFO encounters mm-hmm. that we've seen all, you know, we, we know about it. You know, uh, Jacques Vallée has recorded all this in his books. Uh, uh, Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée and uh, uh, Bob Emenegger in his book associated with his uh, TV documentary, UFOs, It Has Begun, or UFOs Past, Present, and Future, which, you know, two different versions because one was an updated version of the other. And, uh, and so all the other... Uh, well-known UFO researchers in academia and industry and government who had done all the investigations and identified as many witness descriptions of UFOs. When you look at these things, which were really well exemplified in the schematic artwork shown in Bob Emenegger's book from 1974, um, it's clear that these things have different shapes that are not aerodynamic. They just don't follow the human engineering physics principles for mm-hmm. uh aviation um or aeronautical or aerospace flight mm-hmm. and i do so want to get into a few other looking at things yeah and i think that you've shown that well and i do appreciate you answering the question about the you know um, um disclosure conspiracy and i i am even a little embarrassed to ask because i do not see that present when looking into and researching any of this i see a history a rich history of you all working on this for years, but you know, it's something that comes up and, and readers wanted to know, but I want to get into your background and that history. So when was it that you began working on, I'm not sure what you refer to it, but kind of what is considered kind of fringe science? Uh, I don't call it fringe science. Uh-huh. Uh, I call it, I call it out of the box science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fringe has a negative connotation. Um, it's not exactly an accurate word to use. Uh, we just call it out of the box, cutting edge, pioneering. I love that. Um, breakthrough, breakthrough science, et cetera. Um, I, became the, the world's, I became among the world's first few full-time paid professional scientists who were investigating UFOs. When I got hired uh, by Bob Bigelow to work at the National Institute for Discovery Science in July of 1996. And then I went to work for him in Las Vegas and then I was joined by Colin Kelleher, and Dr. Uh, who's got a Ph.D. in biochemistry, molecular biology, immunology, and he's, he's got quite a background in, in immunology and, and uh, diseases, mostly virology and cancers. So, and then we were joined by Dr. George Onet, who is a world-famous, uh, world-renowned uh, Romanian veterinary pathologist who specialized in avian and bovine diseases, and uh, we joined together with Colonel John Alexander, who has a Ph.D. in thanatology, and uh, he studies death. And uh, he was interested in, you know, uh, survival consciousness after death. And he was working for Bob Bigelow at the time on the NIT staff. And, um, and so we all came together. And, of course, John had been working for Bob for some time before we got hired. The three of us got hired in July of 1996. And uh, all of our work, or a good chunk of our work, was uh, well recorded and documented in Kelleher and Knapp's book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, um, which you're familiar with. Yes, And very. Um, so, especially our work out on the uh, NIDS UFO ranch uh, up in northeast Utah in the Utah Valley. And uh, so that documents a good chunk of what we did at NIDS. Not everything, because that, was about, that book was about the ranch. And we did a lot more than just the ranch. Right. Uh, we often use the ranch and Las Vegas as our headquarters to uh, go investigate cattle mutilations and UFO and crypto terrestrial sightings. 
And uh, uh, so just whatever, whatever was convenient. The ranch is really nice because it's, it's closer to the upper, upper western side of the Midwest. And Las Vegas is in the, really, you know, closer to California. So we're in the Pacific Coast area in Las Vegas. So we can reach quite a bit of places from there. But we're still kind of far removed from the, from the actual Midwest and the East Coast areas. So it's just that uh, Bigelow didn't want to expand NIDS any further than Las Vegas. And so we just had those two jumping off bases from which we could do investigations. So we may, mainly stayed regional within that area. And uh, we had a 1-800 number line that was set up and the FAA collaboration that was set up so that if anybody called in UFO reports, they could call our 1-800 number and we could do a preliminary interview with the caller, take information to make a decision on whether uh, uh, it was necessary to send investigators out to investigate their sighting and uh, whatnot. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, I did that for six years until my job got eliminated during a downsizing of NIDS because of the emergence of Bigelow Aerospace. Bob, was, Bob Bigelow was shifting his attention away from UFOs because he kind of had uh, uh, about a five-year uh, attention span on, on these types of things, and he figured we'd have all the problems solved by then, and that's not possible. Um, uh, there's a lot of scientific problems, especially in phenomenology, which can take uh, more than a decade of research and study and investigations, collecting data and analyzing it and forming and reforming or, or f- changing hypotheses until you finally converge on the hypothesis or the theory that uh, is, is doing very well to explain all the data uh-huh. you're collecting. Cool. And, and, and so... And so I was going to so, say. Well, I was just going to wrap mm-hmm. it up. So I was there, for, and then I went to work for the Air Force Research Lab as a contractor to the Advanced Concepts Program Office at Edwards Air Force Base, California, and I did that uh, from uh, from uh, actually I started working for them before my job got eliminated. So from January until uh, mid 2005, I was working for them. But I started working for Hal Putoff as a research physicist. In November of 2004, and I've been working for HAL ever since then, and uh, I got promoted up uh, a few years ago up to chief science officer. So, uh, well, I became senior research physicist among the uh, uh, other staff of the other physicists we had who had been here uh, about uh, six years earlier than I have, six years longer than I have. HAL was also on the staff as uh, as the pres- as the director of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin. So he was the director. He's also a research physicist in his own right, of course, which you probably know. And um, so there were three of us physicists on the staff, and then we had uh, a couple of lab engineers who would put our experiments together, and then other support personnel. And, uh, and so I just rose up through the ranks and became the chief science officer, which is where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. Now, in that history, uh, when you talked about Skinwalker, for instance, I've talked with Colm and with Alexander, and I guess the first question we would be, they both kind of had this this view that they were outsmarted by the phenomenon. In fact, you know, Alexander uses this term, um, kind of a, a precognitive sentient phenomena. Would you agree with that kind of that uh, estimation or, or thought? Yeah, that's pretty much true. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much true. Yeah, I was always one step ahead of us. And John talked about one person in particular that the phenomena seemed to center around. And from what I gather, that might have been you. Is that true? Yeah, pr- 
pretty much. But Colin Kelleher had witnessed some events. So he, I wasn't the only one that had the, all of the experiences. I had uh, many experiences, and some of those I had with Colin. And wow. um, but then uh, there were experiences that Colin and I did not have, because we got to a point where we needed to rotate staff on and off the ranch, because Colin and I were fathers of very small children, very young children in school back in those days. And so, you know, we need to stay home a lot more, otherwise our wives would get angry if we're gone too long. So uh, George Onet was uh, relatively single. I mean, he was still married. His kids were grown, and his wife was working as a professional scientist in another state where they originally lived before he came to Las Vegas. So uh, he didn't have any family duties in Vegas. So we had him, and then we had Canadian um, field investigator Chad Beatkin, and uh, and. We didn't have Shelly Wadsworth involved with this directly. She was indirectly involved because she worked for Bob Bigelow as one of his field investigators, and so she would be more like a conduit of information. And uh, But she would do background stuff for us or bring it to information in our direction, and we'd act on it. So we had Shelly Wadsworth, Chad Deacon, but of the people that went to the ranch, it was basically Colin, George, myself, Chad, uh, and the former ranch owner, and um, after he left and moved, moved away with his family to another state, we got the retired chief deputy of the Uinta County Sheriff's Department to take over the former ranch manager's job, and he became the new ranch manager. And his work for us also included him doing some investigations in the area for us. So he became an investigator as well. And then later on down the road, Nitz hired a couple more investigators. We had John Valier, who was a retired FBI special agent, and then uh, Roger Pinson, who was retired uh, from the San Diego Police Department, who had worked for the Nevada State Law Enforcement. I can't remember which it was. It was uh, ha having to do with the transportation policing on the highways. Uh, I'm not sure if it was – I don't know that he was a highway patrol officer, but – he was in that capacity, and then he left that job and came to work for us as a uh, full-time investigator. Roger, before becoming a police officer, was actually at the AFOSI. He was a special agent with AFOSI. So, um, so he's an expert investigator like John Blair. So right. we had quite a bit of staff, and we were investigating a lot of UFO cases. Not everything was on the ranch. Mm -hmm. um, so we had periods of quiescence on the ranch. So there were always up cycles, down cycles, where there was where the activity would get hot or it would just get cold. And then it reached a point, uh, by about 2000, it started getting cold. Right. And stayed cold through 2001, and by early 2002, that's when Bob decided to start. Uh, actually, starting in 2000, Bob started cutting personnel, because that's when the ranch uh, phenomenon started getting too cold, that it didn't justify having all, those, all that staff. Also, we didn't have that many outside UFO invest, uh, cases called into our win or number, so we didn't have a lot coming in. And the FAA wasn't reporting a lot to us either. So it just got very slow, and Bob is very frugal about his money, so he's, you know, he wants to cut back. He's building that aerospace company up, and he needs right. the money to do that with. So we had to cut our budget to come up with more money every time. So by 2001, my, uh, 2002, John Alexander and Pete Pickup and I... Um, and I think Chad Deacon and Shelley Wadsworth, we all had lost our positions. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and Shelley and Chad weren't full-time, so i got to be clear. They were only paid when they had an assignment. 
and so they were they were like 1099 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, but Colin, George, and John Alexander and I were all full-time employees of NIDS. And uh, John Alexander also lost his job the same time I did in mm-hmm. the sp- in the late winter of of uh, in, I should say in early 2002, which was still the winter. And then my job mm-hmm. actually terminated in the spring because I had some uh, uh, unused vacation and sick leave I could use up before I actually uh, was off the payroll. So. All right, we're going to take anyway. a quick break, and then we're going to come back because I have a lot of questions about some of the stuff that you've gone over, and uh, you're just a wealth of information, which is so helpful. But we'll be right back after this short musical interlude, or if you're listening on a station, uh, a commercial break with uh, Dr. Eric Davis. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am. I have the pleasure of speaking for the first time with Dr. Eric Davis, and you've gone over a lot of really interesting information. Um, when it comes to the UFO reporting, um, in 2009, you know, Bass uh, Bigelow's Advanced Aerospace Group had a partnership with MUFON, and I was actually the PR guy, so I was coming up with like the, the press releases for all of this okay. stuff. And, uh, but now in hindsight, you know, I kind of scratch my head and I think, wow, I was part of that program, but did that program receive some of those ATIP fundings? Do you know, did it? Uh, I didn't get that question. Can you repeat it, please? Did the MUFON Bass Relation Partnership, was that funding from, uh, OSAP or ATIP? Uh, I believe so. It would make that sense. That wasn't anything... That that was nothing I had any role in. So my mm. recollection is that I believe that that the MUFON funding was, did come out of that. So another question is uh, related, and I want to ask more about some of this. But uh, so Kit Green and Gary Nolan are both kind of working on these projects to kind of identify people who experience paranormal phenomena or even with have remote viewing skills. Can we identify in their DNA or, or parts of their brains that that make them more uh, capable of these things or more susceptible to experiences? Have they come to yeah. you and taken samples from you? Uh. There's a part of that question that last. Can you repeat that last part of that question? So have they? Uh, it, you skipped out. Have you been part of that uh, experiment? Oh uh, no, I was a test subject. In other words, I contributed blood. <laughs> uh-huh. But no, I'm not a part of that because I'm not a medical guy. That's that's. Uh, well, uh, and that's, that's that was that we, the sense I meant it, where you kind of a test subject, because you had these experiencers at Skinwalker, and I guess, were you ever frightened? Did you feel threatened? Me? Um, not really. What was the no, most not really. harrowing experience, I guess, that you had? I know, was that experience? Well, I, uh-huh. Go ahead. I never really had a harrowing experience. I think the Dark Shadow experience was pretty, star- I would say, startling experience that you know, portal experiences that yeah uh the dark shadow and the ball of light that came before the orb that came before it and then the shooting incident that we had at a separate time oh i'm not uh, aware of that one i don't think i don't remember it oh that was in the book yeah that's the one in the book where um jesus that's that's over 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> um 
basically we're out in the field at night. <clears throat> I think we were having to do something to deal with a pregnant cow that was giving birth. Um, and the herd was getting uh, restless. So uh, the ranch manager thought, well, you know, there might be a big cat lurking around. And they usually like to lurk when the cows are most vulnerable because they're giving birth. So <clears throat> he was kind of concerned. We had to go look outside to find out. We had to get in his pickup and go drive around to find out if there was any big cats out there and then take a look at what the cows are doing and find out about that pregnant cow. And I believe that was the case about the pregnant cow. I may be wrong about that, but that's what I thought. That's what I'm thinking in my mind is I thought we were worried about a pregnant cow. Mm -hmm. But in other words, I do know that we were worried about the cows overall being stirred up by something. <clears throat> and so uh, we're in the near we're in the near pasture closest to the ranch to the uh, to the uh, manufactured home that Bigelow had installed for the staff to live in. We call that the observation house. And right next door to that is the house where the previous owners lived. And and um, uh, so anyway, so uh, we were out that night. I don't remember now what time in the night it was. It was kind of late. It was definitely dark. I don't remember what time of the year. It was warm. Uh, it could have been spring or fall. Uh, you know, I'm not that good about bovine issues i think it might have been the spring because if one is being born it'll probably be born in the spring or late winter but it was a warm season so uh i'm we're driving around in the near field near pasture and uh there's a certain tree on a corner where the set where the barbed wire fence makes a 90 degree turn from going west to going uh north i believe and when i may have my directions turned around so, but nevertheless, it's a corner tree. It's a big Russian olive tree. And I think this is, the, you know, it may have been the beginning of spring because I, I remember there were no leaves in the tree yet. So it might have been the end of winter, beginning of spring, but it was still, you know, not cold. So uh, I noticed two really large glowing yellow eyes. They looked like the eyes of a big cat, a predator cat. The only problem is they were too big. They were too far apart, and they were up near the top of the tree. Well, you know, in the, in the, in the main bulk of the branches, but close to the top, uh, somewhere in the top one-third of it. And they're just blinking. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? I've never seen a cat that big or with eyes that wide and big. And I'm thinking, no, that's no cat. So, um, so uh, I called, you know, Colin Kelleher was with me, and so was the ranch manager. So I called their attention to it, and they saw it. And then uh, the ranch manager thought, oh, my God, that's a cat. You know, he immediately jumped to conclusions it was a cat. He had his rifle and his spotlight with him. So um, we drove toward it, and what I remember is that the light, the eyes disappeared, and it looked like something fell from the tree and hit the ground. And then I didn't see anything after that. It's just, it's just like the eyes closed up up in the tree, and it might have and, and I thought something was falling and hit the ground, and I didn't see anything run away, but there was nothing there. So we parked the pickup in front of the left to the left of that, in front of the fence, and, that, and behind the fence is all this thick foliage. I mean, Russian olives and all kinds of other trees and shrubs and bushes out there, overgrown grass and whatnot. And now that I think about it, yes, it was near the end of winter. Uh, it was it was winter time, as a matter of fact. Now that I think about it, it wasn't really that warm, and I remember because we had snow on the ground in peace. Not it wasn't uh, snow covered; it was just patches of snow that was left over from an earlier snow, and the ground had warmed up enough that a lot of it melted off. And only cool part, only parts of it that were in the shade all the time, were the only 
patches that stayed intact but slowly melting away as the temperatures were warming up. So I think we were in this winter-spring transition. So uh, so anyway, uh, we parked the truck. Terry got out with his rifle and handed me the spotlight. I got out, and uh, he told me to aim the spotlight. We're looking along the fence line in the trees to look for this animal because he's worried it's a big cat, and he's got to shoot it. Problem. We didn't see the thing with the glowing big eyes, but we saw something whose body profile we saw right in front of us on the other side of the wire. You couldn't see the rear end. You couldn't see the front. You just saw the middle of this body that looked fairly big. To me, it looked like a, a big cow. Um, but to Terry, it looked like a bear. <clears throat> and we were at point-blank range from it, so he just, shot some, he just fired some shots at it. It didn't flinch. And it just walked off into the shrubs and disappeared. We couldn't see the hind end of this thing. Wow. So we, uh, yeah, so all three of us got our way through the barbed wire. We had to spread the barbed wire apart to get through. We got in, and there's a clearing behind all the shrubs and trees. And we followed the clearing thinking, well, that's the only place it's going to go. And there's no footprints in the, in the, in the ground, on the ground at all, nothing. There's no blood. There's no broken twigs or anything. Then we finally ran into the little patches of snow. And in the patches of snow, there's no footprints and no blood drops or trails of lots of blood that you would expect from an animal that's been shot several times and nothing except one single deer footprint, just one single deer footprint, not two, not three, not four, just one. And it was pointed back in the direction of the pickup, not in the direction that we would expect if it was running away from us. So that was odd, and we didn't see any other footprints. And, I mean, this ground is, is a bit muddy from the uh, snow melt. And, and, so the, and, this is, and this print was on the patch of snow. So, anyway, we gave up because we looked all around. We couldn't find anything. So uh, we reported it to Bob Bigelow later on. And uh, the, next, the next morning, Bob got his uh, master hunter tracker, who's the ranch manager for his private ranch and i won't say what state that is uh he i think he manages bob's personal vacation ranch in another state and uh, bob flew him in on his jet to our ranch uh and actually went to the airport at vernal utah and you have to drive 23 miles to get to to get to fort Duchesne. so that guy showed up and he's an expert uh hunter tracker so he started working in a five mile radius starting from the shooting spot and just tracked that thing everywhere. He just could not find a single sign of a large animal that had been shot multiple times, and no carcass, no nothing, no blood, wow. um, no footprint, no hoof prints, or or yeah, no hoof prints is what you would expect. So that was the that was the one experience. And then I had a couple of crazy experiences. Uh, actually, one in the same, uh, just two separate buildings. It's the second home. It's the homestead the crumbled down 19th century homestead where I had the dark shadow incident and the orb incident with Colin Kelleher. And uh, I went into those homes doing some field readings with the radiation Geiger counter and uh, the, and the tri-field meter looking at the field situation, uh, electric magnetic and uh, radio and uh, whatnot. And then the, and then looking at the nuclear radiation and, of course, it's nothing out there. It's quiet. And I stepped into one of the homesteads, and I got attacked. And what looked like bats to me is are swirling around like they were angry. And I just ran out of there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would say, yeah, I got frightened. But that, that was 
So I, I kind of have to backtrack on my earlier statement that I had, uh, you know, I was, you know, the experience I previously described, well, I didn't consider to be frightening, uh, but this frightened me because it got my heart rate going, and uh, I had to run out of there because I didn't know what to do because I got what I thought were bats swirling around. Well, that happened a second time, uh, and I don't remember now whether it was the same incident or whether I went in a separate time, a separate day, and had the same thing within the second house. There's two little old houses next door to mm. each other. And so I went into the second one, had the same experience, and these are taking place in the living room areas. And what I, upon reporting it to Colin, we go back in another, the next day, take a look where we've got full sunshine. And I think this happened uh, late afternoon, early evening, so I don't have full sunshine going on. And uh, I think actually they were. They were just after dusk. Actually, now that I remember, the, the events were just after dusk. So we found a sparrow nest up on the corners of the wall and the ceiling. Uh, more than one. There were several sparrow nests, and sparrows use mud. They, uh, they uh, take in mud in their beaks, and I don't know if they actually swallow it. They probably swallow it, and then they regurgitate it to make these uh, little mud huts up in the wall in the corner area to protect their eggs. And uh, that's what they were. They weren't bats. They were sparrows, and they scared the mm. crap out of me. <laughs> so and nothing paranormal there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we attribute that. Actually, uh, if you want to look at it on a scientific basis, holistically, you don't want to say I just walked in and, and scared the shit out of a, a, a few sparrows, mother sparrows that were protecting their eggs. What it could have been is that, yeah, they were there, but, um, and I think the common denominator would be, yeah, that's what I did. I scared them, so they decided to go on the attack by flying around me. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, it may have actually been a part of the phenomenon that I would have stepped into there and gotten attacked. Now, I wasn't disturbing. This is the funny thing. I wasn't disturbing anything. I did not poke those things. I did see them. I didn't poke them. I wasn't making noise. I was actually walking around quietly and just using the meters, taking a look at stuff. And then all of a sudden, these black things, these winged black things that I thought were bats were just rushing my head in circles. And um, uh, I just don't know. I just... Uh, John Alexander has a has a good background. Colin Kelleher does in that than I do on explaining that part of the that part of the event. But that would and, and Colin has written about it in the sense that he can come up with a, uh, an explanation that it was the phenomenon, it was the act of the phenomenon that that had happened to me and me only. Whereas other people have been in those two houses and never had that problem like I did. Hmm. And it seems that that problem only had followed me twice. So. Do you I feel that I had another? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you do, you. do you feel that you were a magnet for the phenomena? And if so, do you know why? Do you have any ideas? Well, that's a hypothesis we have on people like abductees or people who are not abductees but have uh, more than the usual statistical probability of uh, close encounter experiences of the worst or the of the mediocre of the or of the worst kind. Uh, people, you're, you, you can actually psychically act as an antenna for the phenomenon. And it turns out that uh, the studies that uh, Kit Green and Gary Nolan have done, along with Colin's help, is that they have discovered that the bio... Well, uh, uh, it, it, they're not physicists. I would put it in the terms of biophysics. I'll just say the biology or the bioimmunology or the bioscience of the immune system is that your immune system, which I don't know how many of American people know this or are aware of it, depending upon their degree of education, 
is that your immune system is a separate organ in your body. It's not just mm. a system of chemicals. Your immune system is an organ, and it regenerates itself, like some of your other organs. And also, it's super sensitive. And genetically, Gary Norman and Colin Kelleher discovered that the immune system records every single event that has ever happened in your life. So it's like the Library of Congress that, every, that records everything that occurred since the day you were born, probably even before you were born. Um, and one of the things it records are the insults that your body has taken due to environmental exposure hmm. or injuries or diseases. And it keeps a perfect record of that stuff. And so they hypothesized that, you know, this is, this is really greater. It's, it's acting like a brain. <clears throat> and it's responding like a brain in a, in a psychic way. So um, although it's tied into your, you know, your real brain, but it, it does behave as if it has its own mind. So anyway, their hypothesis is, and I don't remember all the discussions that we've had on this because that was many, many years ago. But the gist of what I know is that the immune system works like an antenna. It absorbs everything in the environment around you. And that might be the reason why the phenomenon is interested in you, because there might, it, uh, it may know that you've got some genetic predisposition that it's interested in the most. And that's what Gary and Kit's work is all about, is why are certain people highly sensitive to being this, having this genetic uh, disposition to phenomenon encounters? Mm -hmm. And then they go into the caudate patamen, uh studies using fMRI scans and, um, and whatnot. And so, you know, the rest of that story. So it seems that uh, there are people that are more sensitive than others. And it is, just isn't in this great old-fashioned brain psychic sense. You might need to throw the immune system into it because the immune system does behave like an antenna that sucks in information, records it. And it's got knowledge, and it may be communicating in its own way that we, you know, we haven't fully discovered everything that it does, to my understanding. And so it's still under study. And genetics is very complicated. Genetics is not straightforward, and it's not linear. It's a very nonlinear, uh, non non straightforward, not, uh, very counterintuitive thing that produces life in this, you know, at least on this planet. And uh, as far as we know, there's still much more to be learned. We haven't learned all there is to know about or to find out about it. We're still making those discoveries. Mm -hmm. So the same goes for the immune system, because the immune system is a function of genetics, of course. So. so when you refer to abduction, do you believe that people actually are being taken, physically taken by extraterrestrials? I don't think they're being taken by extraterrestrials. Uh, we don't have proof that they're extraterrestrials. We know that whatever it is is not human. Now, there is a hypothesis that they've been abducted by a covert, clandestine, rogue, non-state operation that uh, looks at people of specific backgrounds with specific predispositions. Maybe it's a genetic thing, too. And they get abducted because they're being tested or examined or, or there's a purpose involved with that. Um, that's a hypothesis I've, been, I've heard among my colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and the standard hypothesis that comes from John Mack and David Jacobs and, and uh, Bud Hopkins' work has all been uh, uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis that UFOs are from another planet, they're coming down, they're going to pick a few humans off, to, off the ground to, to evaluate them, just like you, just like a cattle rancher who's breeding a specific breed of black Angus or a specific breed of Charlotte's cattle, 
wants to walk randomly into the pen or into the pasture, nab a particular cow, take it back, and like the former ranch manager, the original owner of the, of the ranch at the time that we, in our era, uh, the one who reported all of his uh, family's problems with that phenomenon and, and uh, ended up working for Bob Bigelow when they left the ranch. Um, what he was, was he was a college-educated, um, uh, very sophisticated animal husbandry expert and uh, wasn't just his uh, skill at running a ranch raising cattle. It was his skill in that he was able to do crossbreeding and hybridization breeding using the techniques he learned in college. And that was he could transplant embryos. He, could, he knew all the process and procedures for developing bovine embryos and transplanting them in order to get the best breed of cattle with the best meat quality for a market. So uh, he was that sophisticated. So he's going to wander into the ranch and just grab, a, a, you know, this, this female there, that female there, and take him into the, to the lab or whatever he had at, at the ranch that, he, uh, that served as a spot for examining his cattle, his two mm-hmm. cows, his breeding cows. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's similar in a way. It's almost a similar function. The only thing I caution your listeners is don't assume that you can apply human ways of thinking about these things because although there's a metaphorical analogy to it, um, the fact is is that anything that's non-human necessarily will not think like a human because of the way they evolved, mm-hmm. the way their senses developed, and uh, the way their senses provide information into whatever neurological complex neurological cognitive system organ in their in their bodies which we would call a brain so um so they're not going to have the same ways or methods and frame of mind and processes to think and rationalize the way humans do because of the environment they came from so we can't assume that now if you're thinking they're a rogue covert operation of some sort whether military or non-state actors uh sure they're going to behave like humans do they're going to operate like humans do but uh, if, if you're going to take the hypothesis that this isn't human, then don't overlay human thinking and human framework or human frame of mind, I should say, and human theories and human explanations and speculations on what they're doing, because what they're doing, you do not know. They haven't communicated that to us. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what that's about. We can speculate endlessly. So, right. So just, and that's the hard part. be very cautious about that. It's a hard part with speculation, especially with science. We don't know what we don't know, and typically the answers are things we can't even speculate because we don't know. Yeah, we know. Uh, we do know one thing. They're there. They're doing something. We don't so, know their origin because they don't want to communicate that to us. Right. Um, what about so, the crashes? Are, are, like, there's, there's been some references. I'm pretty skeptical when it comes to alleged UFO crashes, but I think you've made some comments. Uh, maybe some others that have worked with ATIP have made comments that there may be a program to look into that, or there, there may have been crashes, you all feel. Uh, I, yeah, there have been crashes. Uh, the superpowers on the Earth have had their share of crashes, and they have recovered the vehicles from their crashes. So uh, that's why Jacques Lee and I agree that even though these things behave like a conscious, spiritual, psychic entity, they, they do have a advanced technology. They have hardware. And uh, there, there's a craft. And there's occupants, or euphonauts, that he calls them, that Jacques Lee calls them euphonauts. <laughs> so there's uh, euphonauts running these craft, whatever they may be. 
and he likes to make an analogy of these of these beings to the little people or the fairies of Europe and Ireland and um, uh, uh, Magonia. Remember that the passport to Magonia, one of his books, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of thing. So that's fair enough. Um, so anyway, um, so yeah, they have that technology. We do too, and it's a very super sensitive topic. Because it's it's something that uh, your listeners are probably going to be shocked at. Probably less than one one thousandth or one one hundred thousandth of the United States military and the government overall doesn't even know about it. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, I got I, I said that contradictory. I said probably a minute fraction, a like less than one one thousandth or one one hundred thousandth of the people with the uh, need to know access, need to know authorization, and security clearances to be involved with that type of work are the only ones that know the vast majority of the rest of the government really doesn't know. And that's why one hand, like the right hand, doesn't know what the left hand is doing, Mm. virtually because of the stovepiping that goes on in compartmentalized programs. And uh, you just can't knock on doors and say, hey, here's who I am. I've got, you know, I don't have... I've got clearances, but not the right ones. I don't have the need to know, but I want to know. So can you tell me? And you're going to be lied to, because that's, that's the rule. You, you don't want to tell the enemy anything. This guy who's knocking on your door asking you about UFO crashes could be an asset for the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation or the Chinese PLA or uh, the nincompoops over in Iran and North Korea and so forth. So... Uh, you know, even if it's an American, you still don't want to answer that question because you don't know who they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to be revealing that information. So it takes a, a lot of hard tracking and digging, you have to networking, and it can take years and years and years. And then you develop the uh, security clearances and, and the authorization for need to know that appropriately, out, uh, appropriately allow you access to that information. And then you find out, hey, yeah, uh, it's there. It's true. On the other hand, Sometimes the information does come out on its own, but it doesn't come out in the way that ufology likes to fantasize about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes out only to specific people who have specific talents and skills, who have security clearances. They may not have the need to know, but they could have the need to know if they were presented with that requirement or if they were presented by a crash retrieval program and saying, hey, I want to bring in... uh, Gentleman XYZ, he's got the security clearance, but he doesn't have the need to know. I want to give him the need to know because I need his talent to help us solve this problem with the crash retrieval reverse engineering studies. So then they will do that. Other times, uh, that's the official way of doing it. That's how you officially get brought in. Uh, The other unofficial way is, again, you build a level of trust among certain individuals and uh, people within the network who... Uh, after a few years of knowing them, you work with them, they know who you are, they know what you're capable of, they know your competencies, and they want to bring the topic up on an informal basis with you, sometimes not even on an informal basis. They may want to bring the topic up outside the realm of the security apparatus, but within a skiff. In other words, there's going to be no passing of security clearances to establish that I have I'm going to be allowed to be read in on the crash retrieval program, but they'll bring me into a skiff and want to talk informally in the skiff about it and say, well, this is what we can tell you, but there's things that we can't tell you, and we can tell you those things if you can get 
the next level security and authorization to get the need to know, and then we can do business with you. But before we get to that point, here's what we can tell you uh, without having to cross that red line of the need to know and the proper clearances. So, so you, you work this stuff out over a number of years, you build networks and you find the right people. And then, uh, you know, you don't do it by knocking on doors. You do it just through the happenstance of having a contract with somebody or a subcontract and you're interfacing with them. And then lo and behold, you find out they're the vice president or the president of one of the legacy aerospace corporations. And uh, they happen to be a PhD of some sort of their, you know, some discipline, their own, uh, a STEM discipline all, all on their own accord. And it just so happens that they were a guy that worked on the crash retrieval program. Oh, lo and behold. And then they find out that you're working in UFOs, uh, you're on the UFO subject for a, gov- uh, for a DOD program. And they'll say, well, that's wonderful. You're officially a uh, government contractor or subcontractor. And you're working with another aerospace company. Okay, well, let's, uh, and you're working on UFOs. Well, guess what? We did it too. And we don't do it now, but we did it in the past. And here's what we, here's what we can tell you off the record. And here's what we can, and here, and you'll have to go another step before we can tell you what it is on the record. But it has to be through that. Again, you have to have the right clearances. You have to have the authorization for the need to know, and then you can get the full story. So it's a very complex process. It just um, the way Steve Greer went about it for his disclosure program. That was called the shotgun approach. The shotgun approach means um, he was putting himself out there during the 1990s saying, talking about crash retrievals, and uh, I, I won't go through his whole story. I'm sure you've already covered it or other people have covered it. But one thing led to another, and he, uh, he, he like, was like a bar magnet tracking all these retirees from, from various parts of the government, U.S. military, who had some knowledge about the UFO subject and the crash retrieval subject in particular. And uh, a good majority of them were crackpots they were phonies but there was a small number of them that were the real deal hmm. and so he successfully picked up a very small number of them and got some information and uh now as to the veracity and quality of that information that's another story but he did get some interesting information okay so can you share with us who you so think might have been the real deal so that's what I, huh could you share with us who you think might have been the real deal out of his witnesses no, 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 no. What I mean is the information. People, the information was not was was uh, was ver- verifiable. In other words, once people looked into it, they said, "Yeah, this is realistic." Okay. Whereas a good chunk, a good chunk of his disclosure witnesses, uh, you know, you had middle of the road guys. They had some information, but it was too peripheral. It was just anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And then you had the guys that were real liars. He's got a chunk of liars out there that real that he I, I he I don't know how much effort he spent on vetting any of those people. And I'm not going to name names as to who they are, and it's not important because that doesn't because the fact that they have no real information mm-hmm. means it's noise. We're, we're dealing with signal. We're interested in signal and science, folks, not the noise. <laughs> Chuck right. the noise. So so uh, he did have a small signal of people that had verifiable information. And uh, unfortunately, that's like I said, it's the shotgun approach. They came forward, they gave him information, that was freely given to him, but it was after the fact. It was nothing that could be acted on. The people that gave him information were, uh, uh, they weren't directly involved with, the, with crash retrieval um, at all. They, they actually were either peripheral or they heard it from somebody reliable. So the uh, vertical information was high quality, but they were not first-hand 
uh, people, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People with first-hand knowledge or first-hand exposure to this whole subject. So he got pretty close, but that's the shotgun approach. That's where you're going to shoot the shotgun, your pellets are going to hit all over the wall, and there's going to be a small part of the wall where the pellets hit the right targets, and all the rest of the pellets, pretty much only just a few pellets hit the right target, and all the rest of the pellets just randomly uh, hit a bunch of bad targets. And the hard part is that the target's invisible. We don't know. Yeah. (laughs) All we have is the spread of, of... Shotgun spray, but uh, we don't know where yeah. the target is. So, yeah. So here's the thing that you should know is uh, that the crash retrieval program uh, is a very small program. It is not a massive, huge government infrastructure. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, very, it's a very poorly funded program, and it hasn't actually probably hasn't had any money for a while. Um, I do know that the program was terminated in 1989 for a lack of progress in reverse engineering, anything that they had, any of the hardware that they had. And uh, they'll resurrect it every maybe so often, so many years go by, and they'll try it again. And if they just don't succeed, the compartmentalization is a killer. Scientists cannot communicate with other scientists to get help. It's like I'm doing this, this first semester differential calculus homework problem. I'm, I'm doing the rocket equation, and I am stuck on the boundary conditions so I can come up with the right solution that gives me the right answer to the propellant mass flow rate. And I'm having a hard time, so what do I got to do? I, I'm missing something. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with this and uh, to be able to solve this differential equation. So I got to call my buddy who's in my class. He's a, he's a math whiz. And he's the one that gets straight A. So I'm going to call him on the phone and say, help me with this. This is what I got done, and this is what I, I'm stuck on. And he'll explain it to me. Yeah, well, if you're in the crash retrieval program, or any black program for that matter, and you come up with a roadblock, a technical roadblock, you can't call your best buddy or, or any expert that you don't know and just call him cold and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm working on. I'm stuck. What do you suggest I do to get past this roadblock? You can't do that. Yeah, it's funny. Nick Pope had talked about the same problem when they did the Condine report. Uh, They genuinely had some intelligence people who wanted to look into the issue, but they had no access. They couldn't talk to anybody who had – they weren't cleared for all of these things they wanted to write about, so they just had to speculate. Yeah. So – and this isn't just unique to the uh, crash approval program. This type of problem is unique to all the black programs that the DOD has – DHS has them, the military services, uh, service branches has them, but uh, uh, Department of Energy has their own versions. And, uh, you know, you, 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 the purpose of a black program with the special access program security wrap is you've got to limit the information and exposure to the information to as few people as possible in order to produce the maximum security protection against uh, espionage by the enemy. And so that limits who you can work with. That, that also is clear to know. That limits the amount of experts that you can have working with you. And gosh, you know, if, you're, if your small group of experts are stumped, you're screwed because you basically can't call your buddies or somebody you know or somebody you know of who's an expert better than you or, be, or you know, a bigger expert on the subject at, an, at a university either near you or at a university across the country. You can't call those guys. You can't even read them in because you're not supposed to acknowledge uh, some of these black, most of these black programs are not supposed to be acknowledged. So, uh, you know, for that basis, it, you don't legitimately exist, so you can't tip 
tip off the uh, the university expert that there's a program by calling him and saying, I'm stuck on something. You just can't do it. If it's really dire and it's a problem that really the expertise is desperately needed outside of the cleared group, then the program manager and the security officer will uh, will write a justification to uh, go reach out to the university expert and read him in on the program, and they'll have to be given security clearances and sign the NDA, you know, fill out the SF-86 and and all those forms and get the DD-254 filled out. And uh, then they'll be told, you know, you, you, go, you die with this information. You can never talk about it until after you die. <laughs> so, until after you're dead. Um, so that's how that works. And it happens in uh, cruise missile programs. It happens mostly programs involving uh, covert clandestine operations and their logistics. It happens with nuclear weapons development and deployment. It happens with intelligence operations. And, and it happens with technology development. And the interesting thing is that today there's a big move away from special access programs. They're extremely costly to maintain, extremely costly. Let me tell you this. Uh, the cost to maintain information, personnel, and physical security for a special access program can be tens of times larger than the cost of the program itself. So let's say the program is building the B-21 bomber, right? Let's just assume, let's say for the sake of argument, that the bomber project is $50 billion total. That's probably not even reasonable, <laughs> but I'll just say that for you. The security for that is going to be, could be as much as 10 times higher. I mean, it could be stretched out over a number of years, of course, not all at once. So it could be as much as 10 times higher because you've got to maintain all kinds of security. Now, wow. that's just hypothetical. That's amazing. So, so we're, yeah, we're pretty I've, much I've, out of I've time. Seen, I've seen, oh, okay. Yeah, so I want to ask you one last question, and it has to do with the technology yeah. development like you uh, had just mentioned. But essentially, uh, you know, the goal, I think it's been your goal and, and Hal's goal and it's To The Stars goal, is to actually um, use what you've learned from the observation of the phenomena to develop a technology. Do you think that's sure. possible, and is that possible in the near time? Uh, probably, it, it, it's hard to predict. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard to predict. Uh, it probably is long-term, not near-term. More, Some of these projects that were, like, for example, that's what the 38 papers that the DIA wanted in their task mm-hmm. with their bigger aerospace advanced space studies contract was to take the physics that, we, physics and engineering of, 20, of 2009 and 2010, extrapolate it to 2050. Are we going to be able to have a physics and engineering and a technology industrial base that'll produce a vehicle that'll match the Tic Tacs by 2050. Because what if the Tic Tacs decide all of a sudden to turn against us and they use their advanced weaponry, whatever they have, and start hurting people, start destroying things. I mean, we haven't seen that happen, but we've seen hints of that during uh, Blue Book's investigation of the Northern Tier Stack encounters with the giant UFOs that shut down their warhead navigation systems. And that happened multiple times. That happened in the late 60s and happened in the mid-70s. And so, um, and so we know that they're quite, quite capable of rendering our nuclear warheads and ICBMs useless, which is really dangerous because if the Soviet Union had decided to launch a war right then and there, just coincidentally, the damn UFOs had, had rendered it impossible for us to do a counterstrike because our goddamn ICBMs up in the northern tier were shut down. So... So that's an example of when it gets bad. And then there's Colaris. Colaris is an example where the box-shaped UFOs, I think called Chupas, were actually 
killing some people and injuring large numbers of people. Wow. And, uh, and they were using beams to do it. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Coleros case from the 1970s, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Somewhat. And um, well, that was Project Plate. That's what, the, what, that's what the Brazilians call Project Plate, I believe. So the Brazilian Air Force. So, um, so that's, you know, the UFOs have not been mo- uh, benevolent. They have not shown any brotherly, you know, space brotherly love and peace type movements toward us. It's all been just hide and seek, hide and seek. We use stealth as much as possible so that humans don't see us in the environment. And then when we want to expose ourselves, we expose ourselves, do our little fun games, and then take off. And they may be testing our technology. They may be testing the U.S. Navy's capabilities when they do this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also they've done it with the Air Force, too. So, you know, what are they doing it for? Well, again, they're not humans, so they don't think like humans. Right. Um, they're doing it for whatever. Um, in, in case they decide to become aggressive, we're screwed, <laughs> basically. <laughs> We don't have aircraft that can match them. We, you know, we haven't shot at them. Those, uh, you know, the Nimitz was out on a, um, on a uh, certification training to get certified to go uh, deploy at the Persian Gulf in November 2004. And so for the certification training, they just have their fighters taking off the carrier deck of, of Nimitz and flying around doing maneuvers, but they're not armed because they're not supposed to be. You know, you don't want them shooting at your at your fellow planes. It's not a red. I think I think it, they might have had red team, blue team things going on. Yeah, or they, they might did. have just been doing routine. Yeah. So, but you can't have like ammunition. For right. Them. Um, uh, when they want to do bombing and strafing, they do that out at uh, the Nevada uh, Air Force Weapons Testing Range near uh, the test site, and that's mm-hmm. where they can do all the strafing and bombing they want with live ordnance. But when you're over the ocean and you're near ships and you've got your buddies in the air and a, and a red team, blue team type configuration, you, don't want to, you can't have live wardens. Right. They had no way of shooting them down. They were asked if they were armed so they could attempt to shoot one down or just at least send off a missile or fire some guns to kind of scare the UFO into responding. And they, you know, the pilot said, no, we're not armed. We don't have anything. Mm-hmm. They couldn't shoot them down. So that was a test that could not be performed to determine whether you could shoot one down. So... Um, so we just don't know, but you got to worry about it. That's what intelligence yeah. and military doctrine are all about. It's about planning for potentialities, and we have to worry about something more advanced could be overwhelming our military technology. And so we've got to be able to extrapolate to 2050. Will our physics be there? Will our engineering be there? Will our industrial manufacturing technology be there to produce tic-tac-type technologies? And on the flip side of that, boy, that would be wonderful if we could get there. Because commercially, it would revolutionize transportation and energy on the earth, mm-hmm. you know, for all countries. So, so TTSA is looking to benefit. You know, that's a public benefit corporation. So right. we're looking to benefit the public with this. We're not looking at making weapons. The military needs to look at making the weapons, and that's why we have the 38 papers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that was a lot of help. That was a lot of information. Thank you so much. It's great that you talked fast because there's a lot of information to convey. But it was an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I hope we can have you on again one day. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much, and I enjoyed uh, helping you out with your show. Um, Maybe we'll we'll reconnect in the future. Thank you so much for Eric Davis coming on the show. Uh, Really important to have him at this moment in time because of all this exciting stuff going on. And he's a key player when it comes to all of this. 
um, having worked for Bigelow for many, many years, and then also involved with the ATIP program, some of this Pentagon work. So his insight is absolutely invaluable, and we got a lot of great news right there. So thank you so much to Eric Davis. Also, I do want to give you some updates. So I did talk about earlier uh, before going into the first break that you can still save on the International UFO Congress. Go check out ufocongress.com. If you want to get some tickets, any of the packages, you can get $50 off still. And they are early bird pricing. So you're going to get absolutely the best deal right now. Go use the code SAVE50. So when you're checking out all uppercase, put SAVE50, and uh, you'll be able to get a hold of that deal. Also, some people, you know, some of you have mentioned that UFO, that hovering UFO lamp that I you saw me do with UFO Live and stuff, or you can see it behind me in Martin's show. We do have those at the UFO Congress store, so uh, visit the store also if you want to see some of the cool stuff we got there, including those very cool lamps. Otherwise... I do want to also give you an update on Patreon, so I haven't talked about that much, but yes, please do. I'm asking you all to please go to Patreon and uh, register for a dollar at least. You know, there's three different tier levels, but yeah, the least one is a dollar. And the reason I'm saying this is because then I'm going to share with you exclusive content. So last week we had this really cool exclusive audio of Bryce Zabel sharing a story about a former department uh, or a secretary of uh, energy who uh, apparently, at least allegedly, had an alien experience. So if you want to hear that story, go to Patreon, and you've got to be a patron to be able to hear that. Uh, Otherwise, I got some new audio. So David Marler, he's famous for triangle-shaped UFOs. He literally wrote the book on it, and he's done some amazing research. I've had him on the show a couple times. If you haven't heard of him, look him up. He's absolutely incredible. In fact, his book is always in my list of recommended books. But he was at Phoenix MUFON lately, so luckily we got to hang out, and I did a little bit of bonus audio for you all with him. I asked him, what is his favorite triangle UFO case, and tell us about it, and then also, uh, what is his reaction to this news about the Navy making some UFO guidelines? So, uh, David always has some incredible insight, and that is going to be posted at the Patreon site, so if you're a patron, you can also listen to that audio. So, some special stuff, and I mean, come on, it's only a buck a month, and you get the special stuff, several special videos and audios throughout the month. And you also help me out because I want to keep doing this. I want to keep sharing UFO information and uh, and I've got to be able to make some money doing it. Otherwise, I've got to kind of transfer my efforts into things that do make money. Um, but that would be a great help if you could just go in there and do that for me. Thank you so much. You'll find the link in the show notes. Otherwise, I want to thank uh, the people who have helped out this show to Well, I should give you an update. Some of you have been asking, when are you going to have Lou Elizondo on? When are you going to have Lou Elizondo on? All I can say is soon. Each week, he's hopeful. He's like, oh, I think it's going to be this week. I think it's going to be this week. But uh, we have to wait for the History Channel guys to kind of say, hey, green light, it's time to go ahead, because they usually have kind of a period of time where they're like really pushing the show, you know? And so, in fact, I've got a couple great stories with some new information, including an interview, a short little bit of an update from Leslie Kane, uh, the person who helped write that original New York Times article that broke the Pentagon news, uh, some clarification 
that I've put in a story that's going to be upcoming. So I've got a couple of really great upcoming Den of Geek stories that update you about a tip in the Pentagon program. So you go into this History Channel show knowing all you can. And really, I don't think there's anybody out there. There's not a whole lot of people that is sharing public articles to this depth about what's going on. The one person uh, I can think of who's really actually the best resource for all of this is George Knapp with KLAS. So he's doing a tremendous job and he's got some new information coming out this week, which is important. So do pay attention to George Knapp as well with KLAS, but uh, otherwise you got me. So I'm getting out information all the time and I've got new news coming out this month and it'll be uh, related to all of this. So always some cool stuff. So if you follow me on Patreon, you'll also be updated to everything that I'm up to and all of this late breaking information. So you will be the most informed. Huh? That's that's worth something, right? So uh, go check that out. Thank you all so much for joining uh, us today. I want to thank Caleb Hanks with the opening and close music, uh, Systematics with the bumper music. I'm sorry, I've got the sniffles. My nose has been stuffed, so I'm doing the uhs and, and kind of out of it a little bit, uh, at least, you know, sounding funny and stuff. Not that I don't always sound funny. At least some of the feedback is, but uh, oh, well, what can you do? But uh, thanks for putting up for me with me this week, and join us next week for another great show. Hopefully, if it's, it's Lou, if not next week, it'll be the week after, but Even if it isn't, I have a number of really great shows lined up for us. So stay tuned. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, adios, muchachos.